For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, there is nothing hidden, nothing hidden from you. Even our secret thoughts you know from a distance. With you, the darkness of night is like daylight. In the consciousness of our many sins and of your all-searching eye, we therefore come to you again today, confessing our sins and shortcomings and faults. Bless our time and study of Scripture, and may through it we see even more the glory of your gospel, and your son's death and resurrection. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is a fun one. Uh, the book of Hebrews is such an incredible book. It is thick, it is heavy, and it is at times quite hard to understand. If you don't know the Old Testament really well, you're going to read this and just be confused. If you were just, you know, an average person and someone, you know, let's say you're talking to a, a Christian friend and he's like, you know, you should really get back into your Bible. And he just flips it open to the New Testament and starts reading Hebrews. Off the bat, he's just going to, he's going to say, I have absolutely no idea what's going on. The two parts, uh, one in Hebrews chapter 6 and one in 10, are what Luther in his commentary described as hard knots. Uh, that just on the face of it, you know, they like what we just read, that sounds pretty harsh. And surely it has call, caused, uh, you know, many Christians reading through it to kind of almost have fear. <laughs> like, man, is this me? You know, could I be this way that it's impossible to restore me to true repentance? Or later in chapter 10, we'll see, is it talking about me? Because I know I still sin. So is this saying that I'm screwed? <laughs> uh, and I think the answer is, if, if you read through the whole book, the answer is, of course, no. But I think that, you know, this is one when you really dive into it. Uh, I think this, this in chapter 6, it's not just consistent with the rest of Scripture and the New Testament, but um, even the stuff we've been talking about, I think it'll, uh, it, it kind of clicks. So, as you do, you know, you don't, like I just did, you don't read verses for Bible study, you really have to uh, have to find your context. So we can't start with Hebrews 1 and read all the way to chapter 6, although Hebrews chapter 1 is absolutely incredible. And it has, it starts with, I mean, it's Trinitarian. It confesses the deity of Christ. 
and it has one of my favorite Greek words, uh, apaugasma, <laughs> which uh, it's, a, it's a fun word that means, I guess, like radiance, blinding light. It's pretty cool. But anyway, uh, I'd like to start right before chapter six. And, uh, oh, you know what's fun? Talking about starting out of context. Let's do five chapter six, just to like throw in a wrench and maybe we'll talk about this in a, in a later week. Um, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Imagine opening up your Bible and just reading that, you know, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then you say, who in the world is Melchizedek? But we'll, uh, you know what, probably in a in a future week, we may come back to that. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears of him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, or completing all things, I guess, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, this man, we don't have time to cover the Melchizedek story, but he's talking about one of the main themes of this book is Jesus being the ultimate high priest. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And as the high priest, he is the one, as we'll see, that not only, you, so you have the high, the high priest, once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. So only once a year and only the high priest could someone actually go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And this is where you may have heard the Hebrew uh, uh, phrase Yom Kippur. It's Day of Atonement. So only on the Day of Atonement could he take, first he had to offer a sacrifice solely for himself to purify himself. Then he had the sacrifice of, you know, the day of atonement. And this was like the once for all the sins of Israel for that year. And he would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so you get this blood and you get this sprinkling and I mean, of course, all of this then points to Christ, who is not only our ultimate high priest, who can not only go into the Holy of Holies, but can go into the Holy Temple of God in heaven and offer his once for all eternal sacrifice blood, his own blood, as a, uh, you know, as the once for all atonement for all believers that has the power to take away all sins of all mankind uh, forever. So now we have that high priest, because the problem with the old high priests, like Aaron, is they kept dying, <laughs> you know. But Jesus died once and now lives forever, and he is still our great high priest in the heavenly throne room, you know, in the heavenly holy of holies, still interceding for us today. So that, sort of like, that's the major ticket you know, the major punchline of the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Like if there's one major theme, that's it. And he's already dropped this Melchizedek thing. And again, we might talk about this later, but uh, 
definitely that like sets the stage for what we're about to talk about. And then at the end of ver or sorry, chapter five, this is the warning of apostasy, uh, which is then what we're going to talk about in chapter six. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. How do you like pastor to start with that? Like, okay, I've got a lot to say and you guys really suck at listening. So, <laughs> uh, no, I think he, he says this with, uh, like a fatherly tenderly correction, you know, but for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, um, Paul also uses this language. So one thing about Hebrews is we're not sure who wrote it. Some people think it's St. Paul. And there's a couple reasons why, like, I don't think that. Uh, in fact, or earlier in the, in the book, uh, I, I think there's a claim that he makes that doesn't line up with Paul, that, that it could be him. Uh, so Luther, I kind of like this one. He took it as, um, um, oh man, who was it with a, he obviously knows the Old Testament really, really well. It's a good Greek sounding name. Apollos. That's it. No. Yeah. And um, yeah, he knew, he was a Hebrew, knew his Old Testament really, really well. And there's this part in Acts where they talk about this solid food and, you know, spiritual milk and Apollos is in that discussion. So could be consistent with that. Um, yep. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. All right, so he's talking about, you know, I think the word elementary sounds in English simple, but I think here he's talking about like the foundational things of the faith. So the fact that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins, that's elementary. Now it's deep and it's profound and you could talk about it all day long, but um, so he wants to move on to like application type stuff. And there's also this, I think, really, really important. Paul talks about this too, the gift of discernment, because like all of the Christian life is using our biblical wisdom and discernment in how to live lives pleasing to God, right? Through his grace, how can we live our lives themselves as witnesses of Christ's death and resurrection? And really, I mean, that's right. That's what the sermon was about today. Um, you know, actions, our Christian actions, you know, do speak louder than words. And God actually does expect us to, to live a certain way. Now, again, every week I feel like this bears repeating. That doesn't mean that we make it up to God. That doesn't mean that it makes us more saved or it somehow earns our salvation or something like that. We're saved solely by grace through faith. But, you know, living a Christian life is good for your eternal soul. <laughs> so you shouldn't... Uh, take all those gifts for granted. Now we come to chapter six. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Um, so dead works, I think he's talking about, uh, you know, that 
our works aren't what save us. You know, that, that our works um, don't give us spiritual life. You know, only the blood of Christ does that. Um, and there might be a reference to um, how, I think it's Ezekiel, when God says that even, you know, your, your works are like polluted rags. You know, quite literally, they're like menstrual rags. Unclean, not just gross, but pure, uh, unclean in the spiritual sense as well. That require purification. So, yeah, not by works, but by faith. Uh, so move on. And of instruction about washings. This is literally the plural of baptism. So baptisms. And I think it... Um, especially since he's constantly talking about Old Testament, Old Covenant rituals, that you have, there were these Old Testament ritual washings. So if you look at the temple, the way it was laid out, before you actually get into the tent in the outer courts, that's where you have the altar where they made the sacrifices. So you could imagine like the priests would literally be bloody. And then they move forward and you have the lava basin, which honestly, it really does kind of look like a baptismal font. <laughs> um, but that was wet water where they would wash, you know, they'd wash their hands or even uh, at times sprinkle things to be ritually pure and then get closer than be able to come into the tent where you had, uh, don't want to get too far off subject, but uh, more cool Old Testament things. <clears throat> yeah, but then now, so you have these Old Testament rituals and washings, and now you have new baptism. So these old things, not that like baptism was a one-for-one -one replacement of any of that, but all of that, I think it's fair to say, definitely foreshadowed the ultimate ritual washing of baptism. All right, the laying on of hands, which we still do when we ordain pastors, uh, in the old, or sorry, in the early church, it was definitely a, not ritual, it was a tradition that when they would baptize a new convert, they would then lay on their hands. So he, a lot of times, these go together where he's talking about washing, clearly baptism, and then immediately after that, the laying on of hands. Uh, let's see, I lost my place. Laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So again, these aren't elementary, like, simplistic things. They're the foundation of the faith. And this we will do if God permits. All right, and here is where we started the class. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once, again, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
All right. So let's unpack that. Uh, it's a lot of words. That is the way he describes this person. He uses multiple phrases. It's a long run-on sentence, the way he describes this person. So first, if you have your little handout, uh, I did a little bit of diagramming this, uh, this paragraph. And, oh yeah, you have one. I think there might be a few more on the music stand back there too. But anyway, um, first things first. So what, what uh, does he start this with? So for it is impossible. The word here, it's, uh, so the, the Greek word for like power is dunamos. It's where we get dynamite. Sometimes you hear really bad sermons about this, that like, you know, the word of God is like dynamite. Uh, it, I don't want to say that because if anyone's used that, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone. But uh, no, it, it, can be, it can be used fine. Okay, and I have to backpedal here. Anyway, uh, so this isn't the word for power. It's adunamas. So it's like powerless. So instead of saying it's impossible, you could also say like, for it's powerless. And then we'll talk about that okay, what is powerless or who is powerless? Is the person powerless like this apostate? Are they powerless to do anything about this? Are you powerless to do anything about this? Or just the situation is, might be like, you know, there's no power in the situation to change it. Or is God, because of his nature, powerless to do this? You know, we've talked about how... Uh, that also part of God's goodness is that he's consistent in his demand for righteous justice, which is why Christ had to die. It's why God is, in a sense, because he is bound by his nature, powerless, right? And there I put in air quotes. He's powerless to just say, oh, I forgive everybody. Even if there's no repentance or there's no sacrifice for sins or anything like that. It's because he's consistent with his nature or else he wouldn't be the God who is. So we'll, we'll hold on to that. It might, you know, at first it might seem bad to say like, okay, maybe God is powerless in this situation, but it'd be about him being consistent with his nature. All right. And then you'll notice I just kind of bracket off this description of this person. So it's impossible or powerless. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, uh, often this enlightenment term is used with someone who's been baptized. Uh, baptism was also often equated with like an enlightenment, right? The, the spark of new life into the Christian faith. So with those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. So it's also kind of hard sometimes. I know it's it's imagery, but to disassociate tasting the heavenly gift in the new covenant covenant without thinking about Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper. So obviously somebody in the fold and in the church, and they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. All right, so it's impossible for a once enlightened believer who, and then have fallen away. 
So this is just a, it's just a participle and we won't get too much into the Greek grammar, but it's, uh, and then falls away to restore them again to repentance. And why is it impossible to store, restore them to repentance? Because they are crucifying Christ. So since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So first, should we do parapontos first? Yeah, let's do the falls away first. Even though I don't think this is the the order I originally had it. We'll go in the order of the sentence. So having fallen away. Here's the fun thing about these verses. There are three. We're going to use a big fancy uh, theology term. Uh, Hapax uh, legumina. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a word that's only used once in the New Testament. And these verses have three of them, three hapax uh, legomena. So the, um, the having fallen away, that's a hapax legomena. And the crucifying, believe it or not, that's also one. The normal verb for to crucify is starao. So every other time in scripture, when you see crucify, you see starao. This is anastarao. So it's technically a different verb, although it's a compound verb. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that too. But then also the one right after that, paradigmatizontas, uh, <laughs> also one. So yeah, that's, that's what we're gonna spend the next probably 10 minutes talking about. Okay, so this guy who falls away. Although it's only used once in the New Testament, it's used quite a bit in the Septuagint. And it's always pretty bad. So let's look at some of the context. Ezekiel uses it a lot. So I have four examples from Ezekiel. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me. That's how it's rendered, dealing treacherously with me. Clearly, and and Ezekiel, he's, right, the context here are the unrepentant apostate uh, people in Jerusalem. So they're God's people who are worshiping other gods who have fallen away from from God. They're worshiping other gods and they're doing lots of wicked things, which is why God is sending the Babylonians. So he's warning them here, hey, return to God or Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and destroy Jerusalem. All right, Ezekiel 18. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does. 
will he live? All his righteous deeds, which he has done, will not be remembered for his treachery, which he has committed, and his sin, which he has committed. For them he will die. This time it's the, uh, that last one. They render it um, all the sin which he has committed. So again, you know, you're doing different languages and sometimes it's tough to render something word for word, but clearly the context there is pretty bad apostasy. So all the abominations, which is a word that's usually used for such uh, blasphemy. You know, when the, when the pagans conquered Jerusalem, and even in the intertestamental period, there's a prophecy in Daniel that talks about most likely I think there, there's layers to that prophecy coming true. But the first most immediate one is uh, in the intertestamental period, you have um, Antiochus IV, who even sacrifices a pig, you know, in the temple. So it's the abomination of desolation. So yeah, bad blasphemy, treachery stuff. Ezekiel 15, and I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly here rendered acted faithlessly declares the lord god and one more ezekiel 14 verse 13 son of man if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and i stretch out my hand against it destroy its supply of bread send famine against it and cut off from it both man and beast uh, so there it's committed unfaithfulness but obviously this is pretty serious blasphemy stuff this isn't just a, like, you know, the example I'll often use is having a brief lustful thought about the waitress. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is blasphemy type stuff. Not that any one sin is like, you know, all sins equally condemn us and all sin makes us fall short of the glory of God. But also, you know, again, just read through the Bible some sins clearly have more destructive uh, consequences to both us and the people around us. And God also, he didn't destroy Jerusalem with the Babylonians because people were being, uh, you know, gossipy maybe about, about their friends or something like that. He destroyed it because of their blasphemy and worshiping other gods and all the wickedness that went along with it. It's not that one, th again, I think this bears repeating that one sin like damns us more, but uh, clearly God cares about relationships and he cares about the body of Christ and he wants us to live in that Christ-like unity in the body. Uh, so yeah, certain sins affect that more than others. Okay, so that's what this is. A once enlightened believer who has dealt treacherously um, and acted in, in that blasphemy of rejecting the Holy Spirit, as we'll talk about later too. Okay, and then, so it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. I don't think there's anything fancy there. It's just that, uh, yeah, it's impossible or it's powerless to restore them to repentance. Here's where pretty much all English translations then, this next part, 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to public contempt. That chunk there, if you look to the bottom of the handout, all translations add a decent amount of words to help render this in English. In its most basic, literal, you know, word-for-word sense, these are the words that are there. So then having fallen away to restore them again to repentance because they are, here's your anastarao, crucifying with an exclamation part. Oh my goodness gracious, sorry. <laughs> exclamation mark. Uh, they are crucifying to or for themselves the Son of God and holding him up to public shame or public contempt. So the translations will add to their own harm. And that's because when you have participles in Greek, uh, context, it's usually not too crazy in context to tell like what force and, you know, the purpose of why they're doing this. So I think many first, second year Greek students, I definitely would have translated it this way. The way we normally translate participles is we use the word while. So a first year Greek student would say, to restore them to repentance for they are crucifying or sorry to restore them again to repentance while crucifying for themselves the son of god and while holding him up to public contempt so the first year greek student would say um well it's saying while they are in this unrepentant state they can't be brought to repentance because they're not repenting you know, and I think that would smooth things over. But here's the problem. I don't think the, the, the context, that's what he means, is while they're doing these things, then they're, all he's saying is while they're an apostate, they're not in the body of Christ. Okay, that much is obvious. And no serious translators take it that way. Um, and Dr. Kleinig, who is the author of, you know, those big blue Concordia commentaries? Dr. Kleinig, uh, he wrote the, the one on Hebrews, and it's brilliant. And it's like this thick. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. But he definitely points out like, nah, that it's clearly not the force of what he's doing. The Calvinist, they have problems with this. Because, you know, the Calvinists have in Tulip, once saved, always saved. So their take is, well, he's being sarcastic, basically. That, of course, you can't have the Holy Spirit and then fall away because, well, that's his point. And he might point to verse 9 where the next line is, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, but again, the problem is like a third of this book is all about warnings of apostasy and why you have to be on guard and you need to be in the word and you need to be in the body of Christ and you need to be in prayer and you need to pray for wisdom because your enemy, the devil, is out there prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So I think the Calvinist take is clearly skirting the text as well. Um, Next, we'll come, I think, before we kind of get to the heart of it, um, I'll ask this question again. The, the first line, the powerless, right? 
So you may be powerless, and the person may be powerless to do things, but of course, all things are possible. God has power to do anything. Uh, now that said, <laughs> the way Kleinig takes this too, and I think I agree with it, is that I think it is saying God's being consistent with his nature. And we might think about also, uh, when we talked about hard hearts, we could go back to Romans chapter 1 and how God, at some point, he is just and righteous to allow to seal people, right? To judge people, yes, even when they're still alive. And I think this is what we saw with Pharaoh. You know, the first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It was his own path of self-destruction that he was going to follow anyway. So then God said, okay, right? You want to trust in your own gods to save you? You want to trust in the gods of the Egyptians to save you in your own power and in your own wisdom? Fine. Let's see where that goes. And then God seals him in that, in his, uh, hardens his heart. And then uses that to, uh, create the story of salvation that then spread throughout the world so that all people could see how God saves his people, right? The salvation that belongs to our God. All right. So now, mm -hmm. is this saying that people who have been in the faith, fell out of the faith, can never come back in? All right. Well, that leads perfectly into looking closer at those two verbal ideas at the bottom here. So I just want to make a comment. Because mm -hmm. I think the, uh, the answer is going to be no. I think apostates can come back to the faith. So. Yes. Here's the reason. <laughs> yeah. I have two close friends who have fallen out of the church. They don't want anything to do with it. The word they use is disillusionment. I'm going to still keep working with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to hear that it's futile. No, I don't think it is. And... So, yeah, and we're going to look at, and there's, there's more to this as well. But first, the anastarao. So, again, this is a hapax legumina, <laughs> but it is used in extra biblical texts. And I tried asking, uh, actually, chat GPT about this. <laughs> and I, so I kept pushing the, you know, I gave it anastarao, and he's like, yeah, it's, it's used in extra biblical texts, and here's how it's used. And eventually I said, okay, can you find the original Greek extra biblical texts? He even told me where they were. And he's like, I don't have access to those. So I was pretty sad. But in all of these extra biblical texts, which are mostly around the time of Christ or uh, a couple hundred years before, it's always used for like the act of crucifying. So the way Kleinig takes it is, you know, drawing on, this is older language, uh, but it has more force. Whereas like, you know, the crowd said, you know, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And the, the New Testament authors will say like, you guys, right? You, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. Well, where, was it the high priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and everyone else there who nailed him to the cross? No, it was the Roman soldiers. So, but this is like, it has a more like, raw force to it um that's almost as if saying like give me the nails and let me nail this guy to the cross 
then we can go back to this, uh, the big fancy word at the very bottom, holding him up to public shame. And I think this is the key, the holding him up to public contempt, that there does come a time where true hate-filled blasphemy, I think is what this, you know, is the force behind this. So I think there is a little bit of a warning here, you know. So I know, I know uh, more than one or two people raised in the church and had faith, but like at some point, maybe late in college, they're like, I'm not sure I believe this anymore. This is not who this is talking about. So this is clearly not somebody who has doubts about their faith. So dear Christian, uh, you know, who is struggling, right? daily in the dichotomy of being a sinner and a saint at the same time. This is clearly not talking about you. Uh, I think Luther is right to say, like, um, you can look Satan in the face and say, what are you going to do? Bring up my sins? <laughs> I do that on my own, you know. Uh, but I, I have a Savior whose blood has atoned for those. This is clearly not somebody who, again, we all slip up, if you will, with sins daily. This is clearly not that, because we daily also turn to our God in repentance, knowing that we've been redeemed. This is clearly not your grandchild who stopped going to church after their confirmation. And it's clearly not your friends who, again, at some point have fallen away from the faith. But I don't want to skirt the text at all, because I do believe that God, you know, as we talked about, it's a hard saying, that God can seal people, right? Judge them and seal them uh, in, their, in their wickedness. But uh, this is like Pharaoh, you know, this is like Pharaoh. Or maybe potentially, you know, uh, the high priests, when even after the resurrection, and they knew it, that they said, no, this is not the way, God. My way is better. You know, maybe then, something like that. But isn't this, I mean, to me, this is attacking the character of God. So this is, these sins are attacking God's character. It's like when Jesus, when they did miracles and they said he was possessed by demons, and that's allowed him to do that, to do those. And then in Matthew, I guess that's where, where that happens. So it's more about the, it, attacking the character and the quality of God himself as opposed to, I mean, with, with vehement, like, hate. Yes. It's I totally agree with that. And that actually then goes back to the very beginning, the it is impossible or it's powerless. I actually, I'm with Kleinig on this one. It took me a, a, a little bit to come around to it when I was, you know, crawling through this text a few years ago but that it's, it goes against God's nature uh, when he's blaspheming, blasphemed to that extent because it's the equivalent of then, you know, again, they render it crucifying again. I guess that's fine, uh, but holding him up to public contempt. So there's a, I know a guy online. Uh, I didn't really know him personally. I knew his brother. We went to high school together. Uh, and who knows, he might actually listen to this, <laughs> but he is, you know, he's an atheist and he's one, he would say like, if you define apostate for what it is, sure, I'm an apostate and he's an atheist now. 
And he likes to have these discussions online. And to his credit, you know, most of the time, <laughs> he's, uh, he, he really does put it out there for discussion. Now, at times, sure, yeah, you can tell he's trying to rile him up. And there's times where, sure, yeah, then my response will be a little bit more like, if you're going to talk like that, I'm going to talk like that. Just a, a hair too, because that's where this, this argument is going. But I'm going to say, I don't think this is him. You know, so not that in this moment he would care, but I don't think he is on a level of holding Christ and his church up to public contain, to public contempt and shame in such a blaspheming way. But there is another guy, you know, again, I went to school with him a long time ago. And even since, you know, so many people I'm sure had to unfollow him. And I don't know what happened in his personal life, you know, with his parents, because he was very much raised by devout Christians. But the stuff he said about Christianity, about Christ and his church was disgusting. So maybe, you know, I don't want to skirt the text. Maybe that's talking about him. But at the same time, we know in lots of different ways that, I mean, we were all by nature sinful and unclean. You know, and yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. We have the parables like the lost sheep, you know. Uh, uh, there's beautiful, uh, it's actually adapted as a children's song, but um, there once was a sheep safe on a farm and one little lamb got loose. The shepherd went out and carried him home and that little lamb is you. God clearly saves sinners and just like any other unbeliever and apostate is still in their sin, you know? So we know from even personal experience, people who have fallen away and have come back into the fold. So we don't want to skirt the text, but this is not, again, this is not your grandchild who, um, who stopped going to church for a while after their confirmation. You know, this is clearly somebody who is, it, it's on the level of blasphemy, I think is what he's saying. But he's also warning them, saying that like, to think that you couldn't fall away and fall out of the covenant, you know, that's why, like Satan is trying to kill your eternal soul. So you need to be on guard. But he then turns around as we'll see and like, but we have all confidence to be able to approach our holy God because we know we have a high priest who has offered his own blood and is in the Holy of Holies in heaven interceding for us even today. So with that said, let's, uh, let's move on and read just a little bit more in uh, chapter six. For though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. So he ends this really hard saying of, you know, yeah, on this level of apostasy, <laughs> they can't come back. But 
uh, we know better for you because you do know Christ and your salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he goes on to, for more about uh, the certainty of God's promise. Yeah. So we, we do have 15 minutes, so we can move on to chapter 10, but any comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that this is uh, God's word, and we need to look at it and use it for the building up of our faith and faith of believers around us. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, how can we go on and live in sin? He didn't say be sinners. He said live in sin because we've been baptized and now we live in in newness of life. Mm -hmm. And so um, we can kind of say, well, let's play around with that. What does this in sin mean? And what does this in newness of life mean? And Paul goes on and, and he will say, Hey, I do what I don't want to do, just like you mentioned. What a wretched man! Who's going to redeem me from this? He is a sinner, but I don't think Paul would be saying he lives in sin. I like that. I think, so, yeah, that's well put. Uh, even in living in newness of life, one of the things, the first of the 95 theses that Luther puts in there, says that a Christian's life is daily a life of repentance. And I think that's what we are called to do too, is to daily say, Lord, I need your spirit, I need your power, I do things that I shouldn't do, don't want to do, and I need your forgiveness. We always have to live in that forgiveness, and I think that's, that's so true. And when we do that, then I think that we look at a text like this and say, God, you are God. You're far beyond my comprehension. Don't let me use this to judge people, because I don't think that's what it's... We can't think the God's thoughts. I can't look at anybody around here and say, you're going to heaven, you're not going to heaven, because I see what you do. No, God, God's the one that does that. And so uh, we continue to share the gospel, continue to, to encourage one another to live in the forgiveness that this is ours. And, uh, and say, hey, I leave up to my heavenly father how he's going to bring all of us about yeah yeah and i i also think just like you know it it does sound like paul's uh, his points on like again romans one and how but then also yeah that we shouldn't continue to live in our sin right because the christian life is it's it's one of repentance but I also think he's referring, it, it's the verse, it's Matthew 12, um, verse 32, and Jesus said, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Because the Holy Spirit, I mean, Jesus says man, you know, man on earth, you know, you can, he's saying you can, I can, those sins can be forgiven against me, but once you're speaking against the character of God, and most people who go to church would never do that anyway. 
you know, are true believers, you wouldn't speak against the true character of God. But, I mean, even Jesus points out what Hebrews 6 is saying. I mean, there, there's a line when you get to blasphemy. Yeah, sin is serious, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, sin is, there's a reason Christ had to die. Uh, so, but now on, that's actually a good segue into Hebrews 10. And we have, yeah, we'll, we'll just plow through it and get there. We'll start uh, verse 1. And that'll set the stage for, see if we can get to verse 26. I'm just going to straight up start reading. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So, uh, talking about the old covenant, right? So, the law was a shadow of the new covenant. So it's not that God didn't use sacrifices to forgive sins in the Old Testament. He did. But all those sacrifices, the right, the dunamis, the power behind them, still ultimately came in the sacrifice of Christ. And they were drawing, <laughs> just like Holy Communion draws on the power of the blood of Christ. Otherwise, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. So they had to keep on killing beasts because they weren't uh, this once-for-all sacrifice. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible, the same word again, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come to do your will o god as it is written of me in the scroll of the book when he said above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings these are offered according to the law then he added behold i have come to do your will he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, be, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So that, that line should uh, make you think about a psalm that actually the, the preacher here does quote somewhere else in the book. Uh, it's, the Lord said to my Lord, and in English that, that kind of sounds weird, but it's Yahweh said to my Lord, my Adonai. So Jesus quotes it too, and it's this Messiah, right? Talking about the Messiah. So Yahweh said to my Adonai, and he's the, right? This is from David. He's the king. So he's saying there's going to be a Lord that uh, is greater than me, clearly messianic. And Jesus brings this up when he's talking about the parables. And he's saying, who, 
Who do you think he's talking about there? And then, of course, referring to, to himself as the son of man, you know, we can fill in the answer there. But that um, I'll make your enemies a footstool. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So another major theme of this book is the new covenant, that the former things have passed away and they have been replaced with new, better things. They have been replaced with the new covenant. And in the new covenant, yeah, we have the once for all forgiveness that's through the death and resurrection of Christ. But we also just have, we have better um, um, sacraments. <laughs> you know, like the Lord's Supper, it's better than slaughtering beasts every day. It's a lot better. Baptism, it's better than circumcision. <laughs> you know, it's a lot better. First of all, everybody, you know, it's not just males that get the sign of the covenant. Everybody gets the sign of the new covenant as a Christian, you know. And you also don't have to, right, actually do it. So especially as uh, adult converts, adult converts in the Old Testament, I mean, just look at it. The men had to get circumcised. It was a thing, you know. And uh, adult converts to Christianity, as the Bible clearly, clearly says multiple times in the New Testament, right? They, circumcision is nothing anymore because in the New Covenant, it's been replaced. All right, here we go. 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So again, think high priest, ultimate high priest, ultimate sacrifice. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The saints of the Old Testament, you could think the foot of the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, when God is on Mount Sinai in his full glory, they're terrified. They did not want to draw near to their God up there. And you know what? I probably didn't blame them either. But he's saying now something that the saints of the Old Testament couldn't imagine, that we can with confidence draw near even into the holy places because of what Christ has done. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So yeah, meeting together is still important, and that goes back to warning against apostasy, right? Like the reason that we stay active in the body of Christ is because it's good for your eternal soul. <laughs> so it's part of this warning, you know, these are all good things. You should have full assurance. So just as, I mean, God in the Old Testament through the prophets often sounds uh, bipolar, saying how much God loves us and is going to save us, but then also this warning of, if you don't repent, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Um, yeah, but... Even after chapter 6, we can then read this. 
and find comfort. But then, as the Bible often does, shifts gears here a little bit too. 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, I'll stop there because this also provides a lot of context, but you have to know your Old Testament. So the law of Moses, right? Two or three witnesses uh, for this sin, as we have hit on, I think pretty well, was a capital offense, you know, and deserved the death penalty. And what was that? If you go back to Deuteronomy, it was apostasy. It was worshiping other gods. So someone who was in the old covenant and then said, no, 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 I'll take Baal instead. And all the things that went along with Baal worship, which often included, I mean, at times, at the most severe times, even like human sacrifice. But also, I mean, there's just a lot of wickedness that went into that worship. Uh, you can imagine, I mean, there were temple prostit prostitutes, you know. So, um, but this is, again, attacking the character of God and true blasphemy and worshiping other gods. Um, we can also say that the point of this book, this is not where you start. You don't tell a new convert to read Hebrews. So although like you don't want to lean too much on the discussion of homologumina versus antilegumina, if you're familiar with that discussion, <clears throat> when they were solidifying the canon in the early church, you had like all the Gospels and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They all, on the first discussion, basically they said right away, yep, these are all in the canon. And then the ones that they debated a little bit more, I don't even want to say debate, that they put more discussion into are what we call the anti-legumina books. It just means spoken against, but even that is probably too harsh. And this is in there. Uh, so we don't let Hebrews or uh, James, another great book that Christians love, James, but you don't define all your terms and define even the, uh, those elementary things he was talking about. <clears throat> you don't define your terms there. You define them in the Gospels and in Romans. And then these are used for the Christian life and discussion, you know, closer to wisdom literature. So um, we can keep that in mind. And it's not that it's not the word of God, of course, but the, the purpose of it is a little bit different. Again, you don't hand this to a new convert and say, here, read this and then confess the faith because they're going to have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, so Dr. Kleinig... And we only have a couple minutes left, so I'll let him handle this verse, and I wish we had a little bit more time for it. He points out that the intentional sin is pointed at in verse 25, that it's separation from the community, and it's fully disclosed later in verses 28 and 29 as rejection of God's Son. So I just closed my Bible. Let's see if I can find it again, and we'll go to... 28 and 29. Hebrews 10, 28. Yeah, yeah, just the next verses. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so again, this is 
uh, living outside of the covenant. And as just as we don't really wrestle with Paul, when Paul says, like, you shouldn't continue living in your sin, as, you know, Pastor explained, uh, this, this is the same idea, too, that don't continue living in your sin, but rather live in the blood of Christ. Yeah. Any last questions or comments? And we'll end in a quick prayer. So to summarize, <laughs> again, Hebrews 6, it's not talking about your friend who stopped going to church. And it's definitely not about the Christian who struggles with the fact that they're still a sinner and a saint at the same time. Clearly talking about the equivalent of, right, the abominations of desolations. And maybe there are some people out there who, for whatever reason, right, I mean, ultimately it's loving your sin so much that they've rejected the Holy Spirit and hold God up to public contempt and hold the cross of Christ up to public contempt, openly mocking it in a blasphemous way. You know, I don't want to skirt the text, but I think that's what he's saying. So, with the apostates in our lives, I think that should uh, encourage us to pray for them, witness to them, and as Pastor Jim said in his sermon, right, live out our lives in a service of love for them so that they might return uh, to the cross of Christ in repentance. All right. Yeah, let's, we're past time, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day, and we thank you for your word and your gospel. We ask that you bless our church as we continue to make repairs to the sanctuary so that soon we can be back in there. And may it remind us to never take for granted the many, many blessings and gifts that you've given us because everything we have is a gift from you. We ask that you empower us to live lives uh, of true repentance and witnessing uh, to the world, that through our actions as well as our words, we can be little stars that shine as the image that you have created us to be, uh, that reflect the light and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.